0: We'll start with a question. How wide is your circle? Your circle of inclusion, how wide is it? Is it wide enough to include other nationalities and ethnicities and lifestyles? Marshall Keeble was an old-time preacher in the Lord's Church, and he referred to everyone as brother. Whether they were a member of the church or not, he called them a brother. And he got some uh, flack for that. Somebody told him one time, why are you calling everybody a brother? Not everybody's your brother. He goes, oh, yes, they are. Those that I don't catch in Christ, I catch in Adam, but they're all my brother. (laughs) How wide is your circle? Maybe I should ask it this way. How wide should your circle be? All of us know of Christians who have drawn the circle so small that they can't even stand in it. And then we probably know some folks who have such a wide circle that anybody and everybody can fit in it. So how wide should your circle be? And think about that in terms of God, how wide His circle is. Galatians 3, starting in verse 23, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being confined for the faith that was destined to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our guardian to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to promise. In the Broadway musical, Shenandoah, a rugged mountaineer, his wife, their son, and their daughter-in-law are sitting down to have dinner in their small Appalachian home. And right before partaking of the meal, the father says a prayer. And the prayer goes like this, God, bless me, my wife, John and his wife. And no more. That's a pretty small circle, isn't it? How wide is your circle? I'll tell you what, before we go any further, let's do this. Let's get in our time machine and let's go back a little bit, okay? I'm from Arkansas, as you know, and there is a running joke about people from Arkansas, and that running joke has something to do with how our family tree doesn't fork, right? I get it. To be honest with you, it's not all that funny anymore, but somebody always has something to say to me about how you don't have to step too far out of your family tree to marry somebody, okay? One of the jokes is a guy is standing there introducing his wife and his sister, and it's only one woman, okay? So that's the idea, that somehow we as our Kansans marry within our, our family. We're going to do that this morning, though. We're going to trace our family heritage. We're going to look at our ancestry. We're going to go back a little ways to see how we all come from the same place. So, look with me. First of all, remember the song, Father Abraham? Sing that in Bible class. May still sing it. Father Abraham, many sons, many sons, and Father Abraham, I'm one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. That's really what I want to do, but I don't want to stop at, well, let's just praise the Lord. I want to go a little deeper, and as we dig a little deeper, we go back to the Garden of Eden, right? That's where our story begins. We all know that two people, Adam and Eve, lived in perfect harmony and in concert with everything else. Mankind, animals, plants, the earth, was all in perfect harmony and in perfect concert with one another. No more earthquakes, no tsunamis, no tornadoes, no guilt or shame, no sin. It's hard to understand an existence like that, but that's what they had. However, as you know, the serpent slithers in. He entices Eve to partake of the forbidden fruit, and then Adam, and everything fell apart. What was once perfect harmony and peace was lost, Adam and Eve were banished from utopia, from paradise. They were sentenced to die in a land filled with conflict. And I'm sure you've noticed that this theme of exile plays out over and over again in Scripture. God's people find themselves in Egyptian captivity. God, the great rescuer, intervenes through a deliverer by the name of Moses, who leads them to paradise a land flowing with milk and honey. But Israel acts just like their parents, and they disobey God's direct commands. And just like Adam, they are exiled out of paradise. And the Old Testament concludes with Israel returning to paradise, but it's not what it once was. Even though they come back to Jerusalem, the exile hasn't ended, peace is still absent, and conflict still continues. So they may have returned to the land, but it certainly wasn't a land flowing with milk and honey. The curse had not been lifted, and the stench of death still lingered in the air. So, we have this theme of exile and captivity, and within that theme we have another theme. It's that of kingdom. And the kingdom was Jesus' favorite subject to preach on. Kingdom is a major theme throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. You have two different types of kingdoms, don't you? You have an earthly kingdom and you have a heavenly kingdom. And these two kingdoms run side by side for a while at least, until one day there will only be one left. So, although Israel had the best king they could ever have asked for, they had this distorted, perverted view that they wanted to be like the kingdoms around them, like the nations that surrounded them. And so, they begged God for an earthly ruler. God tried to warn them, but he eventually relents and gives them exactly what they asked for. And what the people learned is that when you live in an earthly regime under an earthly king who rules and reigns over you, all you can expect is injustice, immorality, and corruption. And that's what they saw over and over again. They could have been under God's rule and reign, They could have had the best king ever, but they decided to forfeit that opportunity and be like the kingdoms around them. And as a result, they constantly found themselves in a foreign kingdom ruled by a foreign king. Like the king of Persia is basically the new Pharaoh, right? And after Persia would come the Greeks and the Romans, and God's people would be slaves to all of them. So, the Jews wait. Even though they returned to Jerusalem, they wait. The exile has not been lifted. They are not under a godly regime. They are being ruled by man. They were in a kingdom, but it was an earthly kingdom. And they thought that that's what God would bring them in the end as well. They waited and they waited. And what they were waiting for was a king from the line of David, an earthly king who would set up an earthly throne and rule with an iron fist. He would make all the peoples around them abide by the law and worship Yahweh. He would overthrow the Caesar and anyone else who opposed this earthly government that was given by God. Even though the Jews had been unfaithful, even though they had turned their backs on God, even though they had been punished for that, they still believed that God would do something. They still believed that God would intervene. Their history had been riddled with disaster and destruction and disobedience, but they always held out hope that God would do something. And so they wait and they wait. And when their king finally arrives, they don't want him. And that brings us to the most important aspect of the Bible, God's faithfulness. That's the biggest theme of Scripture. God is faithful. God always comes through. God wins. You've heard me say it over and over again. The Bible is a story about God. It's an autobiography. It's a story about God written by God. And the message to the people is be patient, be faithful, and God will come through. Because God always comes through. God always keeps His promises. Even in the midst of disobedience, God keeps His promises. And what are those promises? Three things, basically. Land nation, and seed. Those three things. Now go back to Genesis chapter 12. Let's begin reading in verse one. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now understand, there's really nothing all that special about Abraham. If you had in your mind that Abraham was some sort of righteous individual that God calls you're off base because there's nothing in scripture, at least in the beginning, that shows us anything about Abraham that distinguishes him from the world. We learn from other pieces of scripture that his family didn't worship Yahweh so that we could probably say that God speaks or comes to Abram completely out of the blue, right? Important thing to realize is that God saw something in this man. God saw some potential that he could use and how he could benefit others on a much grander scale. So God makes Abram a promise. He promises to bless him, to make a great nation out of him. He promises to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And he says, you are to be a blessing and all families on the face of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, this would have been quite an interesting proposition given the fact that Abram and his wife Sarai, that would later be Abraham and Sarah, but Abram and his wife Sarai were advanced in years meaning they were pretty old, and they were well beyond the childbearing years. So they had no hope of their name being carried on. However, God blesses them and tells them through a promise that he is going to make a great nation out of them. And without anything but the promise of blessings to come, Abram and his wife, along with the nephew, head out without a map, without a GPS, without Siri or anything of the sort, and they begin a pilgrimage into a foreign land towards a destination that is unknown. They had no idea where they were going. They were leaving their comfortable existence where they were settled, and they set out onto a journey into a foreign territory, all the while living in a tent escaping a famine, only to have to deal with the threat of losing his wife, separating from his nephew, getting involved in a war between kings, dealing with one obstacle after another with very little external confirmation except a promise from God, that God was going to bless him. The Lord had promised that he would make a great nation through him, and yet he and Sarah are granted one son. (laughs) Hardly a nation, greater otherwise, right? So, Abram trusted in God to take his family, to leave his homeland, to journey into the unknown, to face all the obstacles that came his way, to have faith and trust in God, to use him in a profound way and eternal to the importance of Abraham as to how he relates to the rest of the story of Scripture are the promises that God made to him and subsequently fulfilled. What were those promises? Land, nation, and seed. Please hear me on this. The fulfillment of these promises to Abraham is the theme of the entire Bible. I'm not overstating that. I can't say that enough. The fulfillment of these promises to Abraham formed the theme of the entire Bible because every book of the Bible is concerned with God's relationship to the descendants of Abraham. He adopted them. He made a covenant with them. He multiplied them. He gave them the promised land. Even after their rebellion, he still promised to forgive them. He promised to restore the kingdom to them. He promised to give them a future filled with peace and prosperity. That's what the Bible has been about up to this point. So now we get out of the time machine and we rejoin present day. But it's extremely important to note that the story hasn't ended. This is not the end of the story. The words on the screen are not the end, but rather to be continued, dot, dot, dot. I think I've used this illustration before. I asked my wife, and my wife said, look, Chris, if you don't remember if you've used an illustration, I guarantee you nobody else does. Probably, if I'm I'm being honest, most people don't remember what I preached on the week before. So I'm going to use this illustration again if I've used it before, but what do you think the most misunderstood page in the Bible is? You ever thought about that? What's the most misunderstood page in the Bible? You know, maybe something out of Revelation, maybe something, you know, out of Daniel and the, you know, and and, and that whole prophecy. I think the most misunderstood page in the Bible is this one. I don't know if you can read that, but that is the separating page from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The page that begins the New Testament in your Bibles. The New Testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I think that's the most misunderstood page in the Bible. How many doctrinal errors have been made from a failure to understand what happened in the Old Testament and how it sets up what's happening in the New Testament? We see it all the time, don't we? We see people still living under the law. We still see people that refuse to eat certain meats because they consider them unclean. We see, you know, folks believing in concepts like purgatory, the rapture, or monasticism. But here's something else that we need to understand. We often treat the Old Testament and the New Testament like they're they're two separate books. You got the Old Testament, which, you know, really highlights the anger and wrath of God. And it's archaic and outdated and really serves no purpose for us today. But then you got the New Testament, which is all the good news and the happy stuff, because Jesus came onto the scene and 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 now there's grace. But folks, the story hasn't changed. The storyline isn't any different when you get to the New Testament. It's not like you have the Old Testament and then we jump over to the New Testament and now everything suddenly changed. That's not how this works. The story is the same throughout. Look at it. Galatians 3. For you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. The storyline hasn't changed. It's not like the Old Testament was all about rules and laws, and then you get over to the New Testament, and now the story is all about how to get to heaven. That's not the case. The story is the same. What has changed is that God has widened the circle. That's the fundamental change. The circle has been widened. All those who pledged their loyalty to King Jesus have become sons of Abraham and thus heirs according to promise. So a Gentile female, a slave, a dedicated Jew, a Gentile landowner, all of them become heirs according to promise. Every disciple of Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, whether physically or spiritually, right? Look with me at Romans chapter 8. St. Paul, he writes these words. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Paul is keeping with the storyline. Adoption, the covenants, the glory, the law, temple worship, the promises, they all belong to Israel. In fact, one of the major questions that Paul is addressing in the book of Romans is whether or not God has been faithful to his promises. Has God been faithful? Has God broken his promises? Has he rejected the Jews in favor of the Gentiles? And Paul says, no, nothing's been broken. Everything's been fulfilled. The most Jewish thing you could ever do, Israel, is to follow Jesus. Everything has been fulfilled. God has widened the circle so that both Jew and Gentile could form a new nation, a new Israel, physical descendants of Abraham, as well as those who have been adopted spiritually are all now granted access to the kingdom. God has widened the circle to include a multicultural, multiracial people, multi-ethnic people whose flesh doesn't have to be cut away, but rather they must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Circumcision was the sign you belong to God in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the seal is the Holy Spirit. man had a heart attack. They took him to the hospital. He was going to make a full recovery, but the doctor told the family, look, you can't get him excited. Do not get him excited. So, while he was in the hospital, the family learns that the man had a rich uncle that died, and left him $10 million. So how do we break that news to him without getting him excited? So they decided to let the preacher do it. So the preacher walks in the room, trying to be delicate, trying to figure out a way to approach it. He leads with a question. He says, what would you do if you inherited $10 million? And the man says, I don't know, I'd probably give it all to the church. And the preacher dropped dead immediately. (laughs) Do we have any idea the fortune that we stand to inherit? You know, I think so many times as Christians, we are heirs to a fortune, but we still act like paupers. And I'm not sure why that is but we focus on what still has to be paid rather than the incredible debt that has been forgiven, right? We stand to inherit something that is greater than a bazillion, gazillion dollars, right? Something worth far more than any amount of gold or silver. We are sitting on a fortune. And yet all too often we don't live like children of the king. We think in terms of what we owe instead of what has been bought and paid for. We are children of God, heirs to the kingdom, and you think about what that means. Remember the beginning of this story. Go back to Genesis. It hasn't changed. The story is the same. It just includes you now. That's the beautiful thing about it. When you are baptized, you are inserted into the story. Now you are a part of this story and you are an heir according to promise. We are recipients of the same blessing that was made to Abraham. We are no longer slaves, but sons. God in his mercy has adopted us and brought us into his absolute possession. The old life of sin has no more rights over us. The past is canceled and our debts are forgiven, wiped out. We enter into the family of God. We did nothing to deserve it. But God, the great father in his amazing love and mercy has taken the lost, the helpless, the poverty stricken, the debt laden sinners and adopted us into his family. So we begin a new life with God and we become heirs to all of the riches. We become joint heirs with his own son, Jesus Christ. He loves us as if we were his only begotten. And whatever Christ inherits, we inherit. So if Christ inherits suffering, we inherit suffering. But if he inherits life and glory, then we inherit life and glory. And certainly we have. You see, the story isn't about going to heaven when you die. That's what we make the story to be, but the Bible is not about how to go to heaven when you die. It's not like we have a story over here in the Old Testament, but when we get to the New Testament, it's all about how you can be a floating spirit up in the cloud somewhere. That's not the story. The story of Scripture, the storyline is we are the new Israel. The New Testament doesn't switch the story. The story is how Israel's story becomes our story. The story is how Gentiles like you and me can become an heir of Abraham. And if we have become an heir like Abraham, then we are sons and daughters, right? And we stand to gain a fortune. Go back to God's promise to the patriarch. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Do you see it? The three things involved in this promise. Do you see it? Land, nation, seed, right? We are descendants of Abraham. The seed of who? Jesus Christ, right? We are holy, a holy nation like Israel. And we receive as our reward what? The land, the promised land, and eternity with our Heavenly Father. Little orphan boy was sitting on the edge of his bed when one of the workers at the orphanage comes in and tells him that he has a visitor. The little boy said, okay. And the attendant said, but before he comes in, I've got to warn you. The gentleman's pretty grotesque. And the orphan boy says, okay, I mean, that's fine. So the attendant lets the man come into the room, and nothing could have prepared this little boy for what he was going to see. This man looked like something out of a horror movie, like Nightmare on Elm Street. He was scarred from head to toe obviously having been burned severely. He had patches of hair on his head. He, he was bent over and walked with a limp. His hands were all withered, and the boy turned away in fear and horror. He said, Who are you? What are you doing here? And the man said these words. He said, I know it's hard to look at me, but there's something I have to tell you. If you then decide you never want to see me again, then I will understand, I will leave you alone, and I will never come back. But please hear me out. The man went on to say that when you were just an infant, I was, I was outside working on the car, and, and the winds were blowing hard that afternoon. And while I was out, the house caught on fire, and you were trapped helplessly inside as the winds fanned the flames, and the house quickly became engulfed. And he said, I knew I had to act quickly. I made my way into the burning house and the smoke was black and dark. I had to rush upstairs and find you, not knowing what room you were in because my sight had gone dim. And when I found you, I scooped you up in my arms and wrapped you as tight as I could. But there was no way out. No way that is, but through the flames. So I carefully guarded you so you wouldn't be burned by the fire. And unfortunately, I became devoured by the flames. When we got outside, I had to roll around on the ground until the fire that covered my body went out. I went back in to get your mother, but it was too late. She perished in the fire. But thank God you were okay. He said, I was burned to a crisp. I was bloodied. We lost everything, and I spent many months in the hospital recovering, and I was unable to take care of you which is why you ended up here. But here I am, seeking you again. I want to take you home. And the little boy looked at the man and said, you are the most beautiful human being I've ever seen. I don't care that your hands are withered. Your face is beautiful. I don't care that you walk with a limp. I love your hair. I love you. My friends, we have a Savior that endured the unthinkable for us. A rescuer who brought us out of a dark place, who saved us from the flames. And it's not just about What he did, but why he did it. Why he went through it. Our Heavenly Father paid the ultimate price so that you and I could be called sons and daughters. And if sons and daughters, then guess what? Heirs according to promise. We have our reward. And I know you've heard me say it over and over again, but it cannot be said enough. My friends, we win. The circle has been widened. There's room for all of us in it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us. For widening the circle. Thank you, Lord, for... The promise, thank you for being faithful. Thank you for always, always seeing it through. God, we know great is your faithfulness. Great may be our faithfulness. May we always seek to serve you to the best of our ability and to make you proud. Help us to be more like Jesus in our daily lives. Help us to be wonderful ambassadors for you. Thank you, God for all that you do for us. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So as I offer the invitation, I want to tell you that my new friend, Jack Hurd, sorry, Jack, I'm going to embarrass you. My new friend, Jack Hurd, came to church a few weeks ago. He is about to be the son-in-law of Charles and Lisa Bloomer. He's going to marry Lindsay in just, what, a few weeks. And so after church, a month or two ago he comes up to me and I shake his hand he goes I need to be baptized and so okay so obviously he's been thinking about this talking with others about it Jack is new in town he's an attorney and uh, so I get to talking with Jack and we go to coffee and and we share some things and what a what an awesome story an awesome young man Jack stand up would you please Jack was baptized yesterday morning Nine o'clock this morning, uh, yesterday morning, right here at the church building, and I'm so proud of you, Jack, and uh, so looking forward to, to seeing you grow and develop, you and Lindsay, and that's what it's all about. And I want to offer the invitation this morning to anyone, anyone who has been contemplating what it means to be a disciple, what it means to put on Christ in baptism. You know, we, we got up here yesterday, and, and the heater's not working on the water. It was a little chilly, but I think you, th- you think it was worth it, right? it's worth it. If you'd like to study the Bible with someone, let us know. Whatever we can do to help you, the circle has been widened for you. Don't be on the outside looking in. Let us help you. Clinton's going to lead us in a song. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.